Happy Sunday, church family. How's it going? Chris here. I want to welcome you to our online gathering. I want to get right to work this morning. So we're going to do something a little bit different to get the ball rolling. Okay, here's what I want you to do in your home uh, or wherever you're watching this right now. I want you just to take a minute. This is going to be a little bit weird. Okay, but I want you just to take a minute and kind of like remove any distractions you can from your immediate area. So if you got a phone that you're not watching this on, put it to the side. If you got kids, uh, you know, throw some candies at them or turn on uh, Pepe Le Pew or I don't know, whatever show it is your kids are watching these days, uh, just to to give them uh, something to not bother you for a second. And here's what I want you to do. I want you just to slow down. I want you to close your eyes and I want you just to think for a second. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine the world the way that it is supposed to be. Imagine a world where there's there's no COVID, where there's no physical or social distancing, where there's no political strife, where there's no economic strife, where there's no fear, where there's no injustice, where there is no racism, a world where there's no class system, where everyone is equal. In other words, I want you to imagine the world as if everything that is sad in our world would come untrue. Just think about that world for a second. When you think about that world, how does it make you feel? It makes you happy, right? It makes you want to celebrate. It makes you want to throw a party. It makes you, I would think if you're anything like me, it makes you filled with joy. Because everything wrong is fixed and restored. Uh, You can open your eyes. As we come to the last message in the book of Esther, this is exactly what we are going to see. We are going to see that God's people are rescued and redeemed and saved by God. And the result of that is that they indeed celebrate. So if you have a Bible, grab it, open it up to the book of Esther chapter nine. We're going to start in verse 20. uh, And this is going to be our last uh, sermon in this series on the book of Esther. Here's how this message or this passage of scripture rather starts. Mordecai recorded these events. And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far. So Mordecai, who's one of God's servants, who's serving in King Xerxes' kingdom, records these events. Now, which events does Mordecai record? He records all the events of all the ways in which God had saved his people. So thus far in the story of the book of Esther, what we've seen is that both Mordecai and the people of God were facing imminent death. There there were enemies that were coming up against them, enemies in the form of a man named Haman, enemies in the form of Satan and evil who were seeking to kill and destroy both Mordecai and all of God's people. And through a series of providential events where, where God moved and worked behind the scenes, what ended up happening is that God's people were saved. Mordecai was saved. God's people 
were saved. They were moved from death to life in the same way that you and I have been saved by Jesus, in the same way that we were enemies of God. We were, we were under the effect of the curse. We were being attacked by the enemy, which is Satan. His, his hand was on our proverbial throats, if you will, our spiritual throats, and he's choking the life out of us. And Jesus comes in and rescues us and he saves us and he moves us from death to life. Well, this is what happens to Mordecai and this is what happens to the people of God. And, and look at what happens next, verse 21. So he sends this note out and it says then to have them celebrate annually on the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies. And as the month when their sorrow was turned into joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. And he wrote them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving presents of food to one another and gifts to the poor. So Mordecai records all of God's saving work he writes it down. He sends it out to all of God's people. He, 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 he records the miraculous way in which God had saved, rescued, and redeemed both him and the people of God. He sends this out to them by way of um, mail and letter. And then he says to them, what are you to do? You're to celebrate. You're, you're to throw a party. Uh, God's people were to celebrate God's saving work. One of the things that we see time and time and time again through the story of God is that God's people were called to celebrate. In fact, it was actually legislated in the Old Testament that God's people were to be a people who would celebrate. There are five feasts that are prescribed or commanded by God to his people. And all of those feasts were to be celebrations commemorating God's saving work. Now, what's interesting here is the feast that, that Mordecai is instituting among the people is known as the Feast of Purim. Uh, and the reason it's called Purim is because Purim is the Hebrew word for the word Lot. And the word Lot is the word that is referenced when Haman, back in chapter 3, cast lots to determine the day in which he was going to have all of God's people destroyed, which fell on the eve of the Passover, which then also became the same day that God intervened and rescued and redeemed his people. And so the people were actually given a command by Mordecai, although he is not God, but he, they were given a command by Mordecai to celebrate, to celebrate God's saving work. And this is a massive theme through scripture that God's people are called to celebrate time and time and time again, the work that God does in their midst. It's commanded in the Old Testament that the people of God were to actually set aside some of their resources, their wealth, their money for what? For partying, to have a good time. Oftentimes when we think of God, especially the God of the Old Testament, we don't think of him as a God of celebration. We don't think of him as a God who likes to party. But indeed, this is a massive theme through God's story for his people. Even in the book of Esther, what we see time and time again is every major event that occurs in the story of Esther happens around banquets. You fast forward into the life and the ministry of Jesus, and, and what do you see? Jesus is one who came and celebrated. In fact, one of the, the biggest critiques of Jesus by the religious leaders is that Jesus himself was a, a glutton and a drunkard. Now, to be sure, he was neither of those. But the reason that the religious leaders called him this, the reason they made these accusations against him is because Jesus was always at a party. He was always at a party. He was always having a good time. Now, I don't think he was lampshade on the head guy, but, but he was for sure at the center of the party, and he was for sure having fun. In fact, one of Jesus' first miracles was turning water into wine. And where did he do that? He did it at a wedding, at a celebration. 
Even at the very end of God's story, this picture that we are given by God of eternity, of what heaven is going to look like, is described for us as the wedding feast of the Lamb. It's a big feast. It's a big celebration. And God's people are called to be the kind of people who celebrate, who celebrate Jesus, who celebrate his work, who celebrate the way, the miraculous way in which he saves and redeems and rescues and restores because he loves and he cares about his kids. And so the church today is called to be the kind of people who celebrate, the kind of people who put on display God's saving work through the way in which they enjoy the gifts that God has given them and then use them for his grace, for his mission, for his mercy, to put on display his love and his grace for others, to invite them into these celebrations so that they can see too the way in which God is a generous God, is a loving God, is a gracious God, is a God who who loves to give his children good gifts. And now what's interesting is if you were to take the average person on the street, pull them aside and say to them, hey, let's play word association with, with, with you. You know, this is a person that doesn't go to church, they, they don't know Jesus, and you're just going to say to them, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a word, and you respond with a word. And they say, you say to them, Christian, or, or follower of Jesus, or church. Do you think one of the first words they're going to say back is, likes to throw a good party or celebrate? Probably not. Probably not. Why is that? Uh, because I think there's times where, where as followers of Jesus, we can forget the miraculous way in which God has saved us. Uh, we as the church can forget the, the gifts that God has given us. We can forget that, that God loved us so much that he gave us his son, that Jesus came, he lived a perfect life in our place, he died on the cross, he, he rose again, he promises that he indeed will return. He's given us the gift of his Holy Spirit. He fills us with his love. He doesn't, he doesn't mark us by our sin, but he marks us by the righteousness of Christ. And when we forget that, what ends up happening is we become hard-hearted religious people. We become fuddy-duddy church folk. But we're to be a celebratory people. We're to be the kind of people who celebrate the work of God in our lives. And when you think about the moment that we find ourselves in right now, like just think about it right now. Today, uh, you know, it's, it's the middle of June, coming to the end of June. And just think for a second about the moment we find ourselves in right now. Like just think about what you read when you scroll social media or if you watch the news, what the news is reporting to us. It's not good. It's not happy. It's not fun. It's not, hey, let's have a party. It's sad. There's a lot of brokenness. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of pain. There's a lot of hardship. There's a lot of fear. There's a lot of sadness. And there's this beautiful reality for those of us who identify as followers of Jesus. That yes, we live in the world. We, we live in a world that is marked by all those things to be sure. But those realities, the reality of COVID, the reality of oppression, the reality of economic hardship, the reality of fear, all, all the things that, that our world is experiencing right now in this, in this cultural moment we find ourselves in, those are not our dominant story. 
those are not the, the dominant things that define reality for us. What defines reality for us is that we are a people that have been saved by the grace of God, marked by the grace of God, loved by the grace of God. And so while we, while we experience the hardship of living in this world, we also have hope of a better day that is coming, amen? And there's this beautiful opportunity for us in the midst of the moment we find ourselves in, in, in a world that is not chock full of happiness, joy, and celebration right now, where we can actually celebrate. And, and it's not, it's not um, light, superficial, celebration. It's deep joy and confidence in the grace of God that amidst the turbulence that we see in our world, we have this rock who is Jesus on whom we stand. And regardless of what happens around us, yes, there's tears, yes, there's fear, yes, there's sadness, yes, there's moments of these things, there's moments of sorrow, there is this deep reality that, that we are loved, that nothing can stand against us. I had this great moment this week where I got to spend some time with uh, a lady in our church family by the name of Andrea, and she's recently been diagnosed with cancer, and she's about to begin her, her chemotherapy journey. I encourage you to pray for her. We, we love you, Andrea. We, we are praying for you. But I had this moment where, where myself and Ken and Matt, the elders, got to meet with her online to, to spend some time praying with her. And it was beautiful to hear her say in the midst of unimaginable fear, I am sure, her, her life literally hanging in the balance to, to be able to say, I've never trusted Jesus like I'm trusting him now. She, she actually said, every other time hardship comes my way, you know, I'm, I'm smart, I'm, I'm able-bodied, I'm, I'm able to work my way out of it. But she said, but this time there's nothing I can do. All I have is Jesus. And that was a sense of joy. It was like beaming off her face, coming through, uh, coming through the internet airwaves onto my screen, literally bringing me to tears as I could see the Spirit of God at work in her life, that regardless of what is happening around her, there is this, un, uh, this joy in her heart that cannot be taken by anything. That's us. That's the church. That's who we are. And we have this moment that we stand in whereby we can actually celebrate what God has done for us. Uh, our community group, the community group that my family belongs to, uh, you know, we, we're on mission in our neighborhood and, and in the neighborhoods of the people in our community. But right in our townhouse complex, there's about 40 units in our townhouse complex. And there's actually a number of people at West Village uh, who are in that townhouse complex, three or four families I lose track that are actually in our community group. And we looked at the season that we're in with physical distancing and, and there was a great opportunity for a need because a bunch of our, our units were getting uh, kitchen renovations. So there were people that were literally without kitchens for a couple of weeks. And so we just said, Hey, um, as, as followers of Jesus, we want to love and serve our neighbors. So there's a great opportunity here to be on mission. There's a great opportunity to point people to Jesus and give them a foretaste of the kingdom, a foretaste of the gospel that we know and, and, and experience the gospel in a, in a tangible way to actually taste and see the goodness of Jesus. So, what we said to our neighbors were, hey, if you don't have a kitchen, we want to supply dinner for you. So Thursday night, we want to, you know, we're going to fire up our barbecue. We'll cook for you. Come on out. Dinner's on us. My goodness. All of the neighbors started coming out. It wasn't just the people that didn't have kitchens. It was the people who'd been trapped in their houses for the last eight or nine or 10 weeks or whatever it was. 
and people started coming out. And for, I think we've been doing four or five weeks now uh, of barbecues. And the barbecue started with just a couple of families grow, grow, have grown up to like 30, 35 people. I think we've done like, like I said, four or five weeks every single week. It seems like there's a birthday. It seems like there's an anniversary that we're celebrating. There's laughing, there's dancing, there's music, there's good food, there's good drink. There's this broad mix of people. We have our Muslim neighbors, our atheist neighbors, our Christian neighbors, our, you know, our classic West Coast SBNR spiritual but not religious neighbors all coming together. And while, you know, I don't stand up and preach the gospel, my wife doesn't stand up and preach the gospel, some of our other neighbors don't stand up and preach the gospel. It is indeed our hope and our prayer that that as we as we, you know, share our stuff, as we put on display the characteristics of God and his gospel that this will lead to opportunities for us to actually tell some of our neighbors about Jesus. What an opportunity we have in this moment, this moment that is marked by so many things that that aren't happy to be the kind of people who celebrate, celebrate the work that God has done. And so Mordecai sends out this edict, this letter to the people. He says, here's everything that God has done. Here's all of his goodness. Here's all of his grace. Now go and party and the people do Story goes on, verse 23. So the Jews agreed to, to, to continue the celebration. They had begun doing what Mordecai had written to them. To quote the Bible commentary, uh, commentator, the artist formerly known as Prince, the people partied like it was 1999. Okay, here's where it goes next. Verse 24, for Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, the enemy of all the Jews, had plotted against the Jews to destroy them and had cast the pearl, that's the lot, for their ruin and destruction. But when the plot came to the king's attention, he issued written orders that the evil scheme Haman had devised against the Jews should come back onto his own head, and he and his sons should be impaled on poles. So the people celebrate. What is it that they celebrate? This is so important. They celebrate the saving work of God. Uh, what we have in that set of verses there is just a description describing for us the ways, the circumstances in which God went about his saving work for these people, for his own people. And what's interesting about this is as you read these verses, you get no mention of God. In fact, it actually sounds a lot like King Xerxes was their savior. Uh, but make no mistake about it, the people of God understood that it was God who is the one who saved them. Uh, we've said this time and time again through the series, uh, through the series on the book of Esther, uh, that God does not show up through his visible hand of miracle. We see, we see no miracles in this book. We see no mention of God. His name is not even mentioned in this book. We hear no prayers prayed. We see no sins repented of, no prophets speak, no angels appear, nothing. But the way that God shows up in the story of Esther is through his invisible hand of providence. That while, yes, it was King Xerxes who was on the outside, from the outside looking in, it appeared as if he was the one who was making things happen. It was actually God's providential hand behind the scenes who was moving the chess pieces on the board, making it so that God's people would be saved. It was God's providential hand that led Esther to be the one that was selected by Xerxes to be his new king. It was through God's providential hand that Mordecai overheard the king's servants plotting his own destruction. It was God's providential hand that in the middle of the night, Xerxes woke up remembering that he had not honored Mordecai 
He had not honored him for the work that he had done. It was by God's providential hand that Mordecai found favor in the eyes of Xerxes. It was God's providential hand that the edict that Mordecai issued fell on the same day that the edict that Haman issued. It was the same edict on the same day. All of this was God's providential hand. It was God's providential hand that Esther found favor with Xerxes and had a hearing with him whereby she could plead on behalf of God's people. All of this was God's saving work. Let that be a reminder to us that while it may sometimes appear as though God is absent, he is not absent. He is indeed alive and well. He is indeed moving in your life. He is indeed ordaining your steps, orchestrating these moments And so often we look for God in these big, cataclysmic, divine intervention, miracle kind of moments. But more often than not, the way that God works in our life is through these humble, simple, seemingly insignificant moments. But yet it's his providential hand working for our good, our joy, and his glory. And so the people celebrate. They celebrate God's saving work. And then look at what it says next. This is... Very interesting. Verse 26, therefore, the days were called Purim from the word pur. uh, pur. There's that word again. This is the celebration that they are having. This is the feast they are having because of everything written in this letter and because of what they had seen and what had happened to them. Uh, The Jews took it on themselves to establish the custom that they, their descendants, and all who joined them should without fail, observe these two days every year in a way prescribed and at the time appointed. And then look at this, verse 28. These days should be remembered and observed in every generation, by every family and in every province and in every city. And these days of Purim should never fail to be celebrated by the Jews, nor should the memory of these days die out among their descendants. So God saves his people. Mordecai says, y'all need to throw a party to remember God's saving work. And they do. And notice what it says here. They don't just do it once. They don't just celebrate on one day. They want to celebrate every year. They want every generation. They want every generation to remember the work that God has done among them. They want their kids to remember God's saving work. They want their grandkids to remember God's saving work. They want their great-grandkids to remember God's saving work. Interesting fact about the book of Esther. In World War II, when Nazi Germany was seeking to exterminate the Jewish people and uh, many Jews were locked up in extermination camps, it was the book of Esther that the people held on to. Many of them had it memorized. Many of them would write it out because they wanted to remember what God had done. And remembering is this beautiful theme that is threaded all throughout God's story where he's constantly calling his people to look back at what he has done and remember. In fact, in 2 Peter, where Peter gives a a list of 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 sins, of transgressions that we commit against God. He, He says the reason that we commit those is because of our forgetfulness. 
that it's because of our forgetfulness and the grace and mercy of Jesus, we forget who we are. And because we forget who we are, because we forget what God has done for us, because we forget we're loved, we act in a way that demonstrates we don't know the beautiful love that God has for us. All right, we go to quote the old, old country song, right? We go looking for love in all the wrong places. Why? Because we forget. Uh, maybe you're like me. Maybe I'm alone in this one. I, I have no idea. My guess is probably not. But God does something great in my life. I have these moments. I go on a missions trip or the Spirit of God speaks in a powerful way or I come to a church gathering and, and the Spirit just moves in my life. I get so convicted. The Spirit moves. God does something great in my life, in my family, in my heart. And I make these grand these grand promises to God. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to pray every day. I'm going to give my money away. I'm going to help the poor. I'm going to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. And then I get home, sit down on the couch. I turn on the television and I forget. It's all gone. What the people of God are saying here is, we don't want that to happen. We don't want Netflix to cause us to forget what God has done. We want to remember. And so God's people celebrate to remember the work that God has done. And one of the beautiful realities that we have, that we've been invited into, is the reality of the church. That the church are called the people of God, and we are called together as the people of God to remember the work that God has done among us. So often we have this low view of the church that we, we view it more like a product we consume rather than a people that we belong to. And so we come into a church gathering or a church community, and we, and we start asking just really strange questions that are, to be honest, completely foreign to the Bible, completely foreign to God's story, completely foreign to the way that God intended his church to be. We ask questions like, man, do they have good music? Do, you know, do they have good preaching? Uh, do they have like a kid's ministry that I like? Like, does this appeal to my carnal nature, my carnal senses? And we treat the church like it's a restaurant. But that's not what the church is. The church is a family, a family that we get adopted into. And what's beautiful about this family that God's, that God adopts us into is he adopts us into this family. And the reason we need to be a part of the family is because we need to remember. Interestingly enough, two, uh, two of the ordinances or, or regular practices that the church has been given to practice for the last 2,000 years are what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, and baptism. Uh, when our church has been able to gather physically in one space, Every single Sunday since we have existed, we've taken communion together because we want to remember. We want to remember God's saving work. We want to remember his broken body and his blood shed for our sins. We want to remember that he loves us, that he has grace for us, that we are sinners in need of his saving love. We need it. In fact, our community group continues to practice this. I know many of our community groups continue to practice this. We meet just briefly on Sunday morning at 9.15. We all get on a Zoom call together. We all have, like last week, we had uh, wine and croissants, right? Fancy communion at 9.15 on a Sunday morning. And we get on the Zoom call and we have a couple of people just share, like, how do you need Jesus this week? 
right? In other words, I've forgotten. I've forgotten God's saving work. I've forgotten his love. I've forgotten his mercy. Can you please, can you please remind me? And then as a, as a group, we, we speak Jesus to one another. We, we speak the life, the death, the resurrection, the saving work of Jesus into that person's story. And then we take communion together, remembering what Jesus has done. We need this. We need to be a part of this community. The second ordinance, baptism. Baptism's a great ordinance. In fact, we have baptisms coming up end of July, right? Just think about this. Middle of a global pandemic. West Village family, you need to be so pumped up right now. I need you to be pumped up with me. Middle of a global pandemic, and Jesus is still moving and working in through his church, right? Just, okay, let me just rant here for a second, okay? As a church family, we have never been financially healthier than we have been. That's amazing. That's a gift of God's grace. Thank you for your faithfulness. As a church, we have seen God move and work and do amazing things in and through the people that make up West Village. We've seen churches, uh, people in our church rather living on mission. Our community groups, most of them, if not all of them, I think all of them have adopted a single mom through our restaurant to table initiative and have started reaching out and loving and serving and building a relationship with, with different moms around the city. And people have met Jesus. They've met Jesus in a moment where it seems like the church is non-existent. We've said right from the very beginning, you cannot close down the church. Even COVID cannot stop Jesus's church. He promises that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. We have had people meet Jesus. You need to put your hands together for that. You need to clap. I know it's like, it's. I'm preaching this like five days before you're going to watch it, but I need to feel that you're in your house right now clapping with me. Clap and give Jesus just a clap of praise, thanking him for his work. If you're out there and you need to get baptized, you need to let us know so we can help you get baptized. Just send us an email, text the, the number below me on the screen, and we will follow up with you and help you get baptized. But baptism has been given to us as a picture of God's saving work. That Jesus lived a perfect life. He went to the cross. He was buried in a tomb. He was raised to new life. And when a person gets baptized, the apostle Paul says that you are identifying with Jesus, that it's a picture of what's happened to you, that you have denied yourself, taken up your cross, been buried with Christ and raised to new life. You've been given a new heart and a new identity and you are now a part of God's family. And when we come together to celebrate what it means to be the church, to sing songs, to hear, to hear the word of God preached, to take communion together, to see people get baptized, all of this is done for what? To entertain us? No. To tickle our ears? No. To help us remember. We sing to remember Jesus. We sit under the word of God to remember Jesus. We take communion to remember Jesus. We celebrate baptism to remember Jesus, that he is alive, that he is seated on the throne, that he is at work. Amen, church? He's at work right now. He is at work. And can I just, with all the love that I can possibly have for you, say to you that if you are not, if you're not connected to the family of God, if you, if like right now, the moment we find ourselves in, it's such a strange moment where the church is literally scattered. It's, it's beautiful in the sense that the church is called to be scattered, but some of you are scattered and you're scattered alone. 
And some of you are just holding your breath. Now, listen, I understand there's, there's health realities for some of us. Some of us are immunocompromised. We're, we're at an age where it would not be good for us to be out and we should be careful. That's, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to those of us who, who are just on our own, watching church on the television, living in functional isolation. And some of you are just holding your breath. You're holding your breath and you're thinking, I'm just going to do this until we get back to what we had 15, 16 weeks ago. Friends, I don't know if that's ever going to come back. I hope it does, but I don't know. I can promise you it's not going to be next week. I can promise you it's not going to be for some time. Six months, 12 months, 18 months, we don't know. And my fear is that you're going to try and hold your breath till you can have back what you had. That might never come. And in the meantime, you're going to just drown. Uh, the statistics on, on online church gathering participation is not great. Not, these are not statistics just for our church. These are broader church statistics. But roughly 50% of most church attenders previous to COVID are not participating at all in any online church gathering. 40% are watching on average once every four weeks and 23% of people are watching multiple church gatherings. And my fear is that what's happening is those who are on the fringes are, are moving completely outside of the church. And many of us are becoming consumers of church, isolated from the greater community and God's heart is that you be connected. This is why we bang the drum so hard. Be connected, be connected, be connected, be connected. We want, to, we want to help you be connected. We want you to be in a community. We want you to know people. We want you to, to have people around you who can help you do what I just described, which is remember Jesus. Remember your need for Jesus. Believe me, I get it. It's easier just to live your own life in isolation. But friends, I promise you, that is not the life that God called you to live. And you can do that in the internet you can also do that sitting in a church gathering. Jesus has called us to be together, to remember his saving work. And the people of God said, we, we got to remember. It's not just enough for us to remember. Our kids need to know. Our grandkids need to know. Our great-grandkids need to know. Everybody needs to know what God has done in saving us. And then here's what we have next. Verse 29. So Queen Esther daughter of Abihel, along with Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to confirm this second letter concerning Purim. And Mordecai sent letters to all the Jews in 127 provinces of Xerxes' kingdom, words of goodwill and assurance, to establish these days of Purim at their designated times, as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had decreed for them, and as they had established for themselves and their descendants in regard to the to their times of fasting and lamentation. Verse 32, Esther's decree confirmed these regulations about Purim, and it was written down in the records. It was written down. Everything God has done has been written down. Esther and Mordecai write it down. They send it out to the people. They have it. They celebrate. God has saved them. And there's this looming question that hangs over the book of Esther, the story of Esther. Who's the hero? 
Who's the hero of this story? Is it Esther? No, of course not. Is it, is it Mordecai? Of course not. Who is it then? If you've been coming to West Village for more than six seconds, you know the answer to this question. It's Jesus. Jesus is the hero of this story. That Jesus is the better Esther in the same way that Esther mediated between God's people and Xerxes for their salvation. Jesus mediates between us and our heavenly father for our salvation. Jesus is the better Mordecai. And just as Mordecai issued a counter edict to Haman's edict, the, the edict of evil that God's people would be saved, Jesus issues the ultimate edict that has the ultimate salvation for God's people when he declares on the cross that it is finished. The head of the serpent is crushed. Satan is done. Evil is done away with. So so what then are we to make of Esther and Mordecai? Are they heroes? No, they're not heroes. Are, Are they examples? Maybe. But no more than you or I. So what then? Esther and Mordecai are broken people, sinful people that made a lot of mistakes if you go back and read this story with whom God used to bring about his redemption. God used crooked sticks to draw straight lines. He used the crooked sticks of Esther and Mordecai to draw the straight lines of his redemption and saving work for his people. It's good news for us, church. It's good news because West Village is a church that is full of crooked sticks. It's full of broken people. It's full of sinful people. It's full of forgetful people. It's full of people who don't love Jesus well, who don't love their families well, who who don't serve God well, who don't live faithfully, who make mistakes, who screw things up. And yet it is through us through us, the crooked sticks, that God draws straight lines of redemption. That yes, Jesus is going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but he's going to use us to do that. And so the good news is, is it doesn't matter how far away from God you think you are. It doesn't matter how far, how far you've been running. It doesn't matter what mistakes you've made. It doesn't matter what sin is in your life. It doesn't matter how bad you think you have messed this up. The love of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the redemption of God is greater than your brokenness. And Jesus will take your crooked stick if you will allow him and through your brokenness and through your life, if you will humble yourself and submit to him and give your life to him, he will draw straight lines. Jesus is the hero of the book of Esther, amen? And you know what would be amazing? If the book ended there. If the book ended there, I could could preach about Jesus, I could yell at us about Jesus, I could pray for us. The screen would go to black. Nathan would come on here. We would sing our faces off. It would be a great ending to the book of Esther. Well, that's not how it ends. There's these three curious verses. 
right at the end. Chapter 10, verse 1 says this. King Xerxes imposed a tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores. Verse 2, and all the acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Medea and Persia? King Xerxes is still on the throne. Is he a good king or is he a bad king? He's a bad king. He's a drunken, perverted, self-centered, power-hungry, bad king. He doesn't meet Jesus. He doesn't get saved. He doesn't become one of God's family. And yet he still is ruling and he's still reigning. In fact, it says here that he imposes a tribute. In other words, he, he issues a tax on the people. Taxes. Everyone loves taxes, right? So here are God's people. They've been saved. They're celebrating. And the story ends. And it says Xerxes is still on the throne. He still is ruling. Why? Because what the story of Esther is trying to show us is that, yes, the people of God were saved. Yes, God did a, did a great work in saving them. But there's still a greater work that is to be done. There's still a greater salvation that is to come. The world that they live in is still one that is marred by sin. This is not the ultimate salvation. This was a momentary salvation. This was not the end of the ultimate evil. This was the end of momentary evil. But the world is still full of evil. The world is still full of brokenness. The world is still full of hopelessness. The world is still full of despair. The world is still full of injustice and death. All of these things are still part of the reality for the people of God, and it's put on display through King Xerxes issuing attacks. And then here's how the story of Esther ends. With this thread of hope. It says this in verse 3, Mordecai. Mordecai. Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews, and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. There's this thread of hope and it's Mordecai. And it says here that Mordecai, he spoke up for the welfare of all the Jews. And the ESV translation of the Bible, the word is peace. The word peace is also known as the word shalom. And the word shalom is, is this beautiful picture of the world that God intended there to be. Go back to the book of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when God creates the cosmos, the heavens and the earth. He creates humanity at the end of his creation before brokenness and sin enters into the world. He says that it is very good. In other words, there was shalom. There was this peace that rested. There was, no, there was no brokenness. There was no injustice. There was no sin. There was no death. There was no tyranny. There was, there was just goodness and God and his people all walking together in perfect harmony and unity. It was this, this beautiful picture of the world, but then sin enters into the world. Just as sin is in our world, sin entered into God's world. And the reason sin is in our world is because sin entered into God's world. And that brokenness has continued for generation after generation after generation. 
And although God has done saving works like he does in the story of Esther, he has done a saving work in our lives. And many times throughout the history of God's people, he does these saving works. There's there's still this reality of the brokenness that exists in our world. There's still a lack of peace, a lack of shalom. And our world is desperate for peace. Our world is, is desperate to, for, for the world to go back to the way it was supposed to be. And we, we try so hard. We strive. We, we go to political leaders. We go to religious leaders. We go to uh, crusaders. We go to movement leaders. We go to economic uh, systems, hoping that somehow these things can bring peace. If we can just get this one thing to go the way we need it to go, that it'll bring peace. And no matter how hard we try, no matter how much we do, no matter, no matter how many wars we fight, and no matter how many marches we walk in, there's never, ever peace. In the book of Isaiah chapter nine, uh, one, of, one of the most famous Old Testament prophecies about Jesus. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, the Prince of Shalom. That Jesus is the one who will bring peace. That just as these people were saved in this moment by God, so too we have been saved by Jesus. Jesus went to the cross. He died on the cross in our place for our sins. He resurrected from the grave, proving that death cannot hold us, that he he defeated death and he's ascended into heaven and he promises that he indeed will come again. And when he comes, he will bring peace. Jesus is peace. And as long as our world is looking for peace, they will never find it. If you're looking for peace, you will never find it until you come to Jesus. And when you come to Jesus, you know peace. Your guilt is no more, your shame is no more, your sin is no more because you know Jesus and Jesus took all of our pain and all of our sin and all of our brokenness and he replaces it with peace. And friends, Jesus promises that he will come again. And when he comes, he brings peace. We as his people know that this is true and his invitation to us is to know him, love him and trust him. And to look forward to that day with great hope, with great anticipation, like God's people here, with great celebration, until Jesus returns. He will return. He will return, church. And he will bring peace. Let me pray for us. As you bow your head, as we close. I want you to imagine a world the way it is supposed to be. A world where everything sad comes untrue. Where there's peace. 
where Jesus is seated on the throne and gathered around him are great multitude from every tribe, from every nation, from every people group, from every ethnicity, from every, every color, every background, all worshiping Jesus. Where there's no more sorrow, there's no more weeping, where Jesus himself will wipe every tear from every eye because there's no more death. Don't you long for that? I long for that. Our world longs for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we can know peace. And as your people, Lord, may we live as a people who are filled with hope, as a people who are filled with peace, as a people who, no matter what happens in this moment, in this earth, in this, this moment we find ourselves in, we know a day is coming where everything sad will come untrue. and We can look forward to that day with great hope, with great anticipation, with great celebration, and that many, many would come to know the Prince of Peace. That Holy Spirit, you would fill your church and use your church in these days and in this moment in a unique and particular way to put on display what it looks like to have the Prince of Peace resting in our hearts. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you love to draw straight lines with our crooked sticks. We worship you, Jesus' name. And all God's children said, amen. Amen. Thank you, church.